Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 43, and we'll be reading through verse 50. Here again is God's word. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let us ask the Lord's blessing now upon his word. Lord, now we pray as we come to your word. There's much to be learned in a passage like this, Lord. And uh, God, we thank you that we can indeed look at it and learn. There's much we won't be able to go through this morning. But Lord, help me as I prepare or as I have prepared and now as I present your word to your people. I pray, God, that you would help me to stay close to the text, to... Lord, honor your word and to give your word to your people in a way that would be searching, convicting, but also edifying and comforting. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would be honored and gloried, and Lord, that Jesus would be glorified, the gospel of Christ would be made clear through the message. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We come back to uh, the gospel of Luke. Chapter 9, and um, we have a verse there that's kind of a swing verse. Verse 43 goes back to uh, the story that we talked about last week, but it also kind of introduces the story that we have this morning. And so it belongs kind of in both of those passages. And uh, I, I am seeking to exposit the passage uh, this morning as it's found in Luke, but there are parallel passages that I will be referring to here this morning uh, also uh, that are found in Matthew and Mark because they do shed some light on some portions of this as well. Last week I noted with you about the word majesty uh, in verse 43 as being one of the only two places in the Bible where that word is found and, and, and the only two places where, uh, where it's found where it refers to the majesty of God. And both of those occurrences uh, happen right after what one refers to the transfiguration, which Peter talks about in his epistle. He talks about seeing the majesty on the mountain. And then the other is the majesty the crowd beholds when Christ cast the demon out of the boy. And uh, so it's interesting to note that. But we see here in verse 44 that in the midst of all of this, Jesus gives his disciples warning again about his coming arrest. And here I'd like to turn over, well, you don't have to turn there, but I would like to refer actually to the passage uh, that is found in Mark, because I think Mark does a very interesting thing uh, in regards to this, the way that Mark arranges the particular sayings of Jesus that he gives to his disciples for telling his coming arrest, his death, and also his resurrection. 
In three chapters of Mark, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, there is a progression that is followed. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, chapter 10, there's first of all Jesus giving a saying like the one he gives here, telling his disciples that he's going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Perhaps he goes further and talks about his death, uh, but there's always this saying, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10. In each case, after Jesus tells them about that, they misunderstand it. They don't understand what he's talking about. And then, thirdly, so there's first of all the teaching on suffering, then there's a misunderstanding, and then finally there is some kind of teaching that Jesus gives to the disciples in the area of discipleship. For example, in Mark 8.31, Jesus says, He began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In verse 32, Peter misunderstands that and even rebukes the Lord for even saying that. Jesus responds at that time by talking about uh, the cross and talking about discipleship and taking up the cross and following him. In 931, the next chapter of Mark, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Again, foretelling his death. Verse 32 we read, But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. They misunderstood again. And then Jesus speaks about them being little children, his disciples, and also that the true disciples will actually be the servant of all. And then in chapter 10, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Immediately, this is misunderstood. James and John immediately take that opportunity to go to the Lord and ask that they might sit on the right and left hand of him when he comes into their kingdom, showing they totally misunderstand what's happening. And again, Jesus responds with a teaching on servanthood and telling them that whoever would be great among them should be the servant of all. Now, all the synoptic gospels deal with Jesus foretelling uh, his death in these different ways, but I like Mark's arrangement. I think it's very interesting to note that. But Luke's description of this one is actually the shortest of all uh, the synoptic gospels. He doesn't even tell us that Christ tells about his death and uh, the fact that he's going to rise again in three days. He says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and that's it. And again, this is the second time in this chapter that we have had one of those sayings. Earlier in, in verse 22, Jesus had spoke of it as well. Um, but uh, it, it's important for Christ to do this to his disciples. Now earlier in verse 22, he spoke of the necessity of his death. He said, the Son of Man must. It is a necessity. I must die. Here, he, the, emphasis, the emphasis is not on uh, that, it's on the certainty. He said, the Son of Man is, it's going to happen. Earlier in verse 22, he spoke about being delivered into the hands of the Jews. This time he speaks about being delivered into the hands of all humanity. But even here in Luke, in verse 45, even after telling them about what's going to happen, it says, they did not understand the same. 
And this might go back to verse 43 where it says they were all beholding his majesty and the disciples seeing that probably could not understand what Jesus is talking about uh, at this particular time. But Luke gives this in a very emphatic way. He says in a fourfold way, he says they did not understand. Secondly, it was concealed from them. Thirdly, that they might not perceive it. And lastly, they were afraid to ask him about it. As we see in the next verses, they are in no position to understand this concept. They are more concerned about who is going to be the greatest among them. But it is interesting to note that Luke says they didn't understand because it was concealed from them. When Peter made his great statement in Matthew 17 to Christ, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living, of the living God, Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father has revealed it. And so there we hear about the revealing, but here we hear about the concealing. And even that part, part of what Jesus said, is concealed from Peter because he does not understand this fact that Christ is going to have to die. So that is concealed. The question is asked, well, who's doing the concealing here? Where does this concealing come from? Different answers have been given. Some think that it's concealed from the disciples because of their own preconceived ideas, and that can be true. Uh, Sometimes we have ideas that forbid us to understand other things because of wrong ideas that we are holding, and uh, that happens to us. Um, I know um, uh, this this has been common in my life as well, and I've had preconceived ideas. I I can remember sometimes I've heard somebody pronounce a word that I'd rarely heard, but I'd used before, and I thought, well, they're pronouncing that word wrong. Uh, They're not pronouncing it right, only to find out that I was pronouncing that word wrong. And uh, I thought it was inconceivable uh, that I could mess up a word like that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I did. So sometimes things are concealed because of our preconceived ideas. Sometimes it's the devil. Hendrickson says about this, when you don't know who to blame, blame the devil. That's, that's the best way to do it. There was an old comedian that used to say whenever something he did wrong, he'd always say, the devil made me do it. He blamed the devil. But Hendrickson goes on to note that the idea of the devil concealing seems to be foreign to this context of this passage of Scripture. Some say Jesus hid it. Some say God the Father hid it. I don't know that there's a big difference there. I would combine them and say that it's probably God. And I would say in this case, that's who is doing the concealing that God is concealing it from them. Well, then we look at 46 to 48. An argument arises among the disciples, of course, the kind of argument we would never have, the argument of who is the greatest. And here we're given a story about something we all know way too much about, and that is pride. We don't know how this conversation started, but I could very easily imagine that it would have started at that moment from Peter, James, and John saying to the rest of the disciples, hey, You know where we were? We were up in the mountain with Jesus. You guys weren't. Jesus didn't ask you to go, but he asked us to go because we're we're probably the greatest. Now, I'm I'm imagining that. The scriptures don't say that, but I think indeed uh, that could have happened at that point. Uh, Philip Ryken points out that that debate about who is the greatest disciple is a very foolish one. He says, remember, these were men who could hardly stay awake to the end of a prayer meeting. Trying to determine the greatest disciple was a little bit like trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. 
Uh, and I think that's, that's the case here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this debate as the struggle of the natural man for self-justification, comparing oneself with others and condemning and judging them. And he says that this is a life and death struggle that can actually destroy a fellowship. But yet we often find ourselves doing that in some form. Now, to be honest, I don't actually remember a time where I got into an argument with a group of people about which of us were the greatest. I I can't remember exactly uh, ever doing that. But I do have that discussion inside of me. Someone might be talking to me about a particular preacher that they listen to. And they go, you know, he's a really good preacher. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I bet I'm a better preacher than he is. And that's what I'm thinking inside, of course. I don't say that, uh, but that's what I'm thinking. Now, I know that none of you are preachers, so you could never have a problem like that. Uh, but, but at least the disciples, uh, you know, at least, at, least they're, uh, at least they're being honest. This is what they're thinking. And someone once told John Bunyan uh, after a sermon, uh, they said, uh, Mr. Bunyan, you sure preached well. And Bunyan said, you're too late. The devil told me that when I left the pulpit. And uh, this argument of being the greatest can haunt the best of us. We might think it in our hearts. We might have thought, perhaps, those of us that lived in the 70s and 80s, that Muhammad Ali had settled that argument once and for all. Uh, But no, it still goes on. Somehow, in verse 47, Jesus knows what it was they were talking about. We don't know why. Perhaps his divine nature communicates to his human nature. We're not sure uh, how this takes place. But in response, Jesus goes and gets a child and brings it close by his side. Now, many will point out that the rabbis of those days completely ignored children. They wanted nothing to do with children. One quote said from a rabbi, chattering with children will bring a man to ruin. Uh, There are several instances in the Bible of Jesus interacting one way or another with children or using children as an example to his disciples. Now, in saying this, I want to be clear that there's not all attributes of children are meant to be emulated, okay? Um, perhaps you, like I, have re- referenced or noticed, I should say, at some point in our lives, a two-year-old uh, laying down on the floor, pounding the floor, and screaming at the top of their lungs because you took away a toy or something along that line. Jesus is not saying that's the way we are to be. Unfortunately, sometimes we are more often like children in that way than the good way. But uh, we are not just to be like children here. But the point is, actually, in this account, if you look at it closely, Jesus isn't even telling us to be like children in this particular instance. What he's telling us is to be welcoming to children. That's what he's telling us in this account. And uh, he, he is saying we should be willing not only to welcome children, but to welcome all of those whom we might think are lesser than ourselves. Children, widows, the hungry, the poor, the sick, the prisoner, the person of low intelligence, In a sense, Jesus is talking about those people he spoke about in his parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, of course, this story of Jesus telling his disciples to welcome children 
means a lot when we think of what's going to happen later on when the mothers bring their little children to Jesus to pray and bless them and the disciples rebuke them. It appears that they hadn't learned this particular lesson, but Jesus responds in Luke 18 on this story, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I was thinking about that story and thinking, man, it would it would have been a really cool thing to have my kids like blessed by Jesus, you know, having his hands laid upon our kids and blessed. That would have, but then I thought, the, you know, the Lord, there's a sense the Lord does this in the baptism as well. So uh, we, we will accept that in regards to that. In verses 49 through 50, we have the problem of sectarianism, which of course also comes out of the pride that we see in the previous story as well. The disciples say, Lord, we saw a man casting out demons, and he isn't even a Presbyterian. Well, well, you're probably saying, well, pastor, chances are pretty good. That's true. Guy's casting out a demon. He's not a Presbyterian. Uh, but, but they said, because he does not follow with us. Now, that's interesting, because they should have said, because he does not follow you. That could have been an issue. But they don't say that. They say, because he doesn't follow with us. If they're not with us, they miss the bus. Oh yeah, he's a good guy, but you know, he's a Baptist. I believe I've shared this story before um, here, but I'll, I'll do it again for those that weren't there. In my very first church, I had an older gentleman in my church, and um, he was had come early to church, and I was there, so we were talking. And it so happened that the Barley Show was going on in this community. This was a town of 150, but the Barley Show brought people from all over and brought all the breweries uh, from across the, the nation to come together to buy barley. And so it was a really big deal, and a lot of festivities and activities went on. But, of course, there was a lot of overindulgence that went on as well. And so we were talking, I was saying that, you know, as a Christian, I wasn't going to go to that Barley Show. And I never I can forget his response. He looked at me and goes, you know, a lot of Christians won't go to the Barley Show. But they'll go bowling. And he looked at me, and I guess he might have known I was on a bowling league. Um, and, and I was, because two of his sons were in that league with me, uh, so maybe that was it. But again, it's always like, well, but they're not like us. You know, they're, okay, they're this, but they're not that. They're not, they're not quite there. Um, that's the way we are. It's, it's, it's that desire, like the man that says, it's me, my son, my son Jim, his wife, us four, no more, Acts 2 4. Uh, it's it's kind of like that. Every, the old saying said, everyone in the world is quite mad except for me and thee, and sometimes I have my doubts about thee. And uh, that, that's the way we can be. But we contrast this exorcist that the disciples run across with a couple of others that are different. There are the sons of Sceva in Acts 19 that seek to cast out the demon by saying, I adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preaches, and then the man turns around and beats them up. That's not the same as this man here. Nor is it the same of the one that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 7 when he says that uh, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? This man was actually casting out demons, apparently, and he was doing it in the name of Jesus. Now, perhaps the disciples were extra bothered because, if you remember, they had just been asked to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. And now perhaps they saw somebody successful and that kind of bothered them. And so sectarianism reared its ugly head. And so they're asking Jesus about this. The response of Jesus is, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. 
Now, there's a statement later in Luke, in chapter 11, just a couple chapters, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Well, the disciples here say the man does not follow with us. Now, Jesus would say to us, you are either with me or against me. And that melds both these statements together. You're either with me or against me. I believe this man was with Christ. He's not like those in Matthew 7. He is with Christ in what he is doing. And there's another story in the Bible that goes back in Numbers chapter 11. In verse 25, we're told that the Spirit of God comes upon the 70 elders of Israel, and they all begin to prophesy. Uh, But then we find out two other men get in the mix, and they start prophesying. Their names are Eldad and Medad. And the young man comes running up to Moses and Joshua and telling, uh, hoping that they will put an end to these two men. And he says, uh, there's these two men prophesying. And Joshua says to Moses, he looks at him and says, my Lord, stop them. But Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Well, let me make some applications this morning. There's a phrase here in our text that I think can help us often. Do you ever get frustrated with somebody because you're talking to them and you're trying to convince them of something and no matter how much you say, no matter how many rational, brilliant arguments you bring to them, they do not accept what you have to say and you just think in your mind, they just don't get it. What is wrong with them? At that time, I want you to remember five words from our text. It was concealed from then. Hendrickson says, When someone errs grievously and or inflicts injury, do we too always make allowance for mitigating circumstances? They spend four hours debating with someone, and I have done it. And in the end, they don't even come over to my viewpoint, and I think, how can they not get it? And I think, well, now maybe it's concealed from them. Or maybe it's concealed from me. There are things that God conceals from us and some things from others. For years, I was a believer, an expositor, and a teacher of the Arminian system of doctrine. For many years. I believed it. I preached it. And then one day... It all changed. So it is with that concept that I want to mention something else that goes along with this. We are coming to the last year of Jesus' ministry in time with his disciples. And it appears they have a long way to go. They have just failed in trying to cast out a demon from a boy. They're still concerned about which one of them is going to be the greatest. They have no concept of the cross and its importance, and they think anybody who isn't with their little group ought to be rebuked. Boy, this next year better be really good, because they are a long ways away. Michael Wilcox puts it this way, What then can Jesus do with a group of disciples still so unbelieving, slow-witted, swollen-headed, and narrow-minded, except take them with him on another year's course of teaching? Andrew Murray wrote a book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. Brothers and sisters, we are all in the School of Christ. There are many things yet concealed uh, from us, and many of them 
may be concealed along the way through our lives, but none of us have arrived. We are all still disciples in the school of Christ. The principle in the last verses we looked at is the principle Paul speaks about, and all this kind of hangs together. In Philippians 1, Paul says in verses 15 through 17, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, if you hadn't read that before, you would almost expect Paul to say, those ones that are doing it the right motives, pray for them. We want them to succeed. These others, pray that God strikes them dead uh, because they are causing more pain to me and they are actually muddying the waters. But actually, they weren't with Paul. But Paul prays God that even though they weren't doing it out of right motives, Christ was being preached. Can we still do that? Can we say, I thank God that Christ is being preached over at that Pentecostal, Baptist, Episcopalian, Methodist church? Or are we going to say, they're not with us. We have nothing to do with them. Let me give you this quote taken from J.C. Ryle. Thousands in every period of church history have spent their life copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no one can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. They have been ready to say of every Christian who does not see everything with their eyes, forbid him, forbid him, for he follows not with us. The divisions and varieties of opinion which exist among Christians are undeniably very great. What then ought we to do? We must leave alone those who do not agree with us and wait quietly till God shall think it fit to bring us together. The plain truth is we are all too willing and ready to say we are the people and wisdom will die with us, as Job 12.2 says. We forget that no church has the absolute monopoly on wisdom and truth and doctrine. And may the Lord help us to understand that as well. And then, in this text, we come to grips with what I said from the beginning, the sin of pride. And there's no one better to address this sin than you because of my great humility. In case you're wondering, that was a joke. Okay, maybe I didn't get that. John MacArthur said of pride, it is the defining sin of fallen human nature. The soil in which all other sins sprout, take root and grow. It's the damning sin that produced angelic rebellion against God and sought to topple him from his throne as a sovereign ruler of the universe. It produced the sin of Adam and Eve, plunging the race into corruption. That pride has been reclassified as a virtue throughout history, and in contemporary society only reveals the depths of human depravity. One who I'd mentioned before who had much to say on this subject was C.S. Lewis. He said, I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit they're bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about, about them or drink or even that they're cowards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular 
No fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And of course, he was speaking about pride. Everybody's proud of something today. They're proud of their sexual orientation. They're proud of their skin color. They're proud because they support a particular organization. I passed a sign this morning. I passed by where it says, proud home of a union member. They're proud because their child is an honor student at some particular school. As Lewis said, we all hate pride when we see it in someone else. We do. But it's hard to see it sometimes in ourselves. As I was preparing this, I asked myself the question. I don't know that I got a good answer for myself, but I asked myself, how much do I really value humility? If that old story about the genie in the bottle coming out and granting three wishes is true, how many of us would our first wish be, I want to be more humble? That's, well, I should say, after you get first wish of wishing for unlimited wishes and then the second one. But how many of us would, would wish that? That would be the first thing on, on our, our plate. Oh, if only I could have more humility. Kent Hughes gives this distinction between a dog and a cat. He said, an owner pets his dog, and the dog, th- and the dog thinks, my owner must be God. An owner pets a cat, and the cat thinks, I must be God. I think that's a good description. We all tend to be cats in that area, don't we? After all, why are we so great? What is it that makes us so special? I remember years ago hearing about a man who went to work for a farm and as a farmhand, and the more he worked and the more he got involved in it and the farm was succeeding, he began to think of himself as pretty much indispensable to the farm. And uh, the farmer noticed that, so the farmer asked him one day, he said, hey, would you do me a favor? Bring me a pail of water over here. The man did that, brought the pail over there. The farmer says, I want, uh, I want you to do me a favor. He says, take your, take your index finger and, and stick it in the water. The man did that. The farmer says, no. Now he says, pull it out. The man did it. And the farmer says, you know how long that hole stayed after your finger got out of the water? That's how long you're needed around this place. Well, sometimes we need something to bring us back to reality. J.C. Ryle says, none has so little right to be as proud as, none has so little right to be proud as man and of all men, none ought to be so humble as a Christian. 1999, by God's grace, we were able to plant a church in Hammond, Wisconsin that then came into the OPC and still is in the OPC. In 2013, I felt that the Lord was calling us to plant a church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I thought to myself, I know I'm terrible, you would never think this, but I thought, how is the church going to survive without me? Who are they going to get? How in the world can, can they keep going with this? Well, that minister that followed me is still there. Ten years later, the church is bigger and better than ever. That hole in the water closed really quickly for me. People are proud for all kinds of things. People are proud because they don't believe in God. I came upon a poem years ago, and I finally found it on the Internet. I've searched for this several times, and I must have finally figured out how to search, or just somebody just posted it. The poem is called The Humanist. That's what it says. He exists because he was created. He's here because he was placed here. 
He's well and comfortable because divine power keeps him so. He dines at God's table. He's sheltered by the roof that God gave him. He's clothed by God's bounty. He lives by breathing God's air, which keeps him strong and vocal to go about persuading people that whether God is or not, only man matters. Jesus, in these verses, keeps the cross always in the forefront. He's always looking towards the cross. He knows that's where he's going. And so should we. Later indeed, the cross that the disciples were rebuking the Lord for and all of those things, they will come to understand that it is to be the centerpiece of their ministry. Paul tells the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Galatians he said, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It is incumbent upon us to follow the example of the apostles and to make the cross the focal part of our teaching and our preaching. It is the cross of Christ that matters, not our pride, not our raising ourselves up or thinking that we're special. It's the cross of Christ. It's all about the cross. In verse 44, Jesus says he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. But it doesn't say who's going to deliver him. He just said he's going to be delivered. So who is it? Who killed Jesus? People ask that question. Used to be people would say, the Jews, the Jews killed Jesus. Then others would rise up and say, no, it was the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus. Others would point out a particular person like Pilate or Herod. There are two other answers that penetrate much deeper into this question. Who killed Jesus? The answer is, I killed Jesus. I'm the one. Blame me. It was my sin that caused him to go to the cross. It was me. But even saying that, there's one other answer that goes much deeper. It was the Father that killed Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We have a hymn in our hymn book that says exactly that. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now don't make one mistake. Don't make the mistake of, since it was God that did it, I have no guilt in this matter. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It is the sins of all of us that took him to the cross. But it is God that smote him with the infinite penalty of his wrath that enables our sins to be covered and forgiven. That is the message we must continue to maintain. It's the cross, because the cross will keep us humble if we're focused on that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us about these very important things. 
shows us our pride. And Lord, we're also proud about so many things. Keep us humble. Lord, help us not to get lifted up about things that, if, if at best, if we have them, if at best, it's because you gave them to us. And so, Lord, help us. Keep us humble. Keep us away from the spirit of sectarianism that makes us think we're always right and everybody else is always wrong. Keep us away from trying to lord it over other people in discussions. Give us a spirit of humility, recognizing who we are, and that when we pass from this life, the world's going to go on. And Lord, I pray above all that you drive us to the cross. Keep us there, Lord, under the shadow of the cross. Keep us from pride. And you do that by helping us to proclaim the message of the cross, that Christ has died for us. Speak to the people this morning if they are those who've never gone to the cross and never laid their sins at the feet of Jesus. Speak to them this morning. And may indeed they do such a thing, Lord. Recognize it's not by their works, but it's only by trusting in the atoning death of Christ that they could be saved. And Lord, again, keep us all from pride, that terrible sin that continues to afflict us, and help us to always give glory to you. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.